Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Rappencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. This past week, we reported on a celebration in the national park system. It marked the reopening of the Paradise Lodge and Annex in Mount Rainier National Park after two years of much-needed restoration. We also passed on word of the awarding of a contract to complete the rebuilding of the Spiri Chalet in Glacier National Park and offered some tips for first-time RVers heading into the parks. You can find those and other stories at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, we talk with Jacob W. Frank, one of the staff photographers at Yellowstone National Park, about what many of us would consider a dream job. And we offer an overview of visiting some incredible national parks in South Dakota. What would your ideal job be working for the National Park Service? Backcountry ranger? Interpreter? What about wildlife biologist? Or what about staff photographer? Today we have Jake Frank with us from Yellowstone National Park. He's a photographer whose work we've long admired and envied here at The Traveler. Though he currently is based in Yellowstone, his work has appeared from Arches National Park, Bandelier National Monument, Big Cypress National Preserve, Carlsbad Caverns National Park, Denali National Park, well, you get it. The list goes on and on and on and on and on. Welcome, Jake. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Kurt. Good to chat with you. Yeah. Well, we'll get this question out of the way first because I'm sure you're asked it quite often. Which is your favorite park for photography? It must be kind of like choosing your favorite child or favorite parent. Uh, it's pretty easy for me. Denali National Park in Alaska. It's it's the first park that I got to work in for multiple seasons. Um, if people are familiar with a lot of the jobs that are in uh, the park service, there's a lot of seasonal positions and I kind of bounced around for my first three or four parks. I only worked one season. And then when I got to Alaska, I met my now wife. So that was a, a reason that I ended up staying um, a little bit longer. So it was really cool to see something. And then the next year, you know, kind of already, I could look back at my photos and see the dates of things. And I kind of had a built-in phenology of like when the flowers were going to show up and when the wildlife was going to migrate through. And so it was the first time I'd ever really spent an extended period of time in a national park. And also because of my duty station where I was, I was stationed 53 miles into the center of the park. Wow. And the access of that park is after mile, it's a 92 mile road, but after mile 15, you have to be on a bus right. in order to get out into the park. And so at the end of the day, when the buses were all gone, we're stationed in the middle of this gigantic 6 million acre national park, pretty much all by ourselves. There were 40 of us and we could just hike out from our house. There was, you know, all these mountains we could climb right from our back door. Um, I had a lynx living underneath my house. I hmm. had a grizzly, I was uh, sitting on the couch and had a grizzly bear look in my window and we both scared each other like pretty bad. <laughs> not your average setting. No, not at all. And it's just, a uh, Alaska in general is just a, a super wild place. Um, you know, the mountains are bigger, the parks are bigger, there's, there's less people. So it, it's just more remote and it feels wilder. Uh, and Denali is known for being a trailless wilderness. So it was the first time I'd really ever been in a national park when I was like, where do you want to hike? And everyone's like, well, wherever we want, because there's no trails. And so just kind of having to 
learn to be more savvy. It was a little bit more of a challenge, but with that greater challenge was a greater reward. And so I have seen as equally amazing things in other national parks as I've seen in Denali, but it seems like all the really cool things that you can find in like a national park. So in Yellowstone, obviously the wildlife here is amazing. Mm-hmm. And Denali has that wildlife. And when you think about really big mountains, you can go to like a Glacier National Park or a North Cascades or a Yosemite. And Denali has those, but even bigger. Like the valleys are bigger, the mountains are bigger, the glaciers are gigantic. There's just all these really cool things. So being up there and getting to live out in the middle of the park, uh, that was just a, a super awesome experience. And and uh, and again, I met my wife there. So you know, on the inside of our wedding rings, we have the GPS coordinates of our first backpacking trip <laughs> that we ever went on. So very nice. Holds a special place in both of our hearts. Where, where did you grow up? I was born in Billings, Montana. My mom uh, was born there and my grandfather. So I've got like three or four generations of Montana folks, but my parents were sick of the cold weather and they decided that they were going to move to Florida when I was young. So I basically grew up in Florida. I would spend my the, the majority of the school year in Florida. And then in summers, I would come back out to Montana. And I kind of always tell that story as a joke because people were like, did you always want to be a park ranger? And I didn't know that Yellowstone was a national park. Like you just refer to it as Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. We didn't go to ranger programs. We just would jump in the car and come out and drive through for the day, like come up over the Beartooth Highway from Billings and, right. you know, drive around in Lamar Valley and then come out the north entrance. And so it was, um, I would say I, I got a little bit of city in me from growing up in Florida and near the beach down in South Florida. I went to school in Gainesville at the University of Florida. But then as soon as I graduated, I immediately moved back out west I started working in the Tetons and then went from the Tetons to Glacier and then from Glacier to Carlsbad Caverns and then up to Denali and then did some private sector work, uh, working in the, uh, the Colorado plateau for a nonprofit down there. So, uh, doing video work and photography work. And that was really where I really started getting into photography was right around them because I could make my own schedule and being in the four corners area that like, the Colorado Plateau is one of my favorite places in the United States too. That high desert and just the the red rocks and the canyons, that's all amazing. Definitely a wild landscape. Yeah, and there's just so and 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 not there's all of that of just like the beautiful landscape, but then there's all of the historical ancestral Pueblon culture that growing up in Florida I didn't really learn a lot about. So I was just blown away that I had not even known that there's these civilizations that have been here for, you know, a hundred years or like over a thousand years in some places. Um, and that was just super interesting to, to learn about that and to visit places like Chaco, uh, national historic park. You can go out there and just hiking around, you'll find like a pot shirt and you can see the fingerprints from the people who made it like mm-hmm. 800 years ago. That's just a really cool thing to be able to, uh, so did a little bit of that. And then from there, uh, eventually got back into the park service but that whole time when I was working in the, uh, in the Four Corners area, I was just trying to work as much as I could in a short period of time so that on my long weekends, I could stack four or five days together, and then I could go out to another national park and photograph and just was really trying to build up my portfolio to to make myself a competitive candidate for a, like a job that I'm currently in. De- definitely living the dream. Did you um did you train in photography or did it start out as a hobby that evolved? It started off. So 
so I have zero training in photography or videography. It's um, I've a lot of park service jobs, the type of job that I'm in. So my, my actual title is uh, audiovisual production specialist. And for short, I just tell people I am the videographer, but I do photos and videos and social media for the park. And there's not very many of these jobs. I would say there's a handful total. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the majority of people in parks that are doing social media and photography and videography are doing it as a collateral duty. Right. And so basically any job that I was in, I would work as hard as I could to get the things that I had to do done first so that I, you know, so that I had more time to try to, you know, fill a vacuum, whatever, whatever park I was in. So when I was in Alaska, the person who was their media specialist had just left. So it was vacant. And so I kind of weaseled my way into a, Uh, like a winter volunteer position, I said, Hey, you know, this guy's gone and you need some help with this. You know, I don't really know how to do that, but you're not going to pay me. I would do it as a volunteer. And a lot of, there's a lot of volunteer opportunities in the national park service, but it really, for to do something that you want to do, it really requires you to kind of already have a network. So, you know, I get asked that question all the time, like, you know, how do you start volunteering? And there's really not a great answer, but getting in with a, a park near you and, and starting to, you know, build up your network. So that way, when you want to go to some other place, that person that's in there can help contact. And so I had just worked that whole summer. And so they knew who I was and they were willing to keep me on for the winter. And like, they would give me a, like a free place to stay and I would help with various media projects. And so I just started, you know, taking pictures and doing social media. And they're like, Hey, you're pretty good at taking pictures. Do you want to join our social media team? And I said, okay, sure. And then they're like, you know, you're pretty good at writing for the social media posts. Have you ever thought about developing a wayside exhibit? Like we're trying to work on these projects and I had never done worked on like InDesign or, or any of the design programs before, but I said, sure, I'll give it a shot. And I did it. And they're like, Hey, you're pretty good at designing this. Have you ever thought about making a movie? And I said, no, but uh, sure, I'll give it a shot. And then, you know, eight years later, now I'm here. So you know, been... no, I was going to say, um, Dan Wink, the, the former Yellowstone superintendent. I remember when when I first saw your name attached to Yellowstone, I, I asked him about that, and uh, he said he's just uh, stockpiling stockpiling the best of the best as as much as he could. So uh, he was obviously impressed by your photographic skills. Well, and and to go more about like the importance of the networking is when I was volunteering in um, the Colorado plateau area, I had never met Neil Herbert, who was the Canyonlands and arches videographer and photographer, but I had known him just by through his work. He's another, like mm-hmm. I would say he's one of like my national park service mentors. Hmm. And uh, I had had the opportunity to meet him when I was living in the area and we went out and shot a bunch of times and, the he was ended up promoting to Yellowstone into my position that I'm in right now. And then when he promoted to another level up, he was responsible for backfilling that position. And because we had worked together in another place and he had seen my work and I had just reached out as a volunteer, that basically helped put me on the short list to for this position when it was advertised. And so the park service is a really small network of people, especially when it comes to like design and media and video and photography. There's really like, I would say it's very small um, and everybody seems to know everyone. And so again, it's just with like everything else is that building that network and building relationships with people is, is just, you know, with anything in life is really important. And so 
when that job came open, I applied for it and had the opportunity to come and work here with him for a couple of years. He's recently just moved on. He's working for the Department of the Interior doing photos and videos for the entire uh, fire, basically like the, I don't know the exact position, but he's basically in charge of building up how we communicate about fire. So like getting photos and videos and starting to build out web pages and developing content and hmm. uh, establishing a social media presence. So, so it was really a, a, a great opportunity for me. I feel like uh, to get to work with someone as talented as him and, you know, he's really good about pushing me and, and getting me out of my comfort zone. And when you're working with somebody who's also really talented and they get a really good sunrise shot, you're like, oh, I should have got up that morning. And then the next time you're like, all right, I'm going to get up early and I'm going to go get a better shot. And so there was that like really that fun, healthy competition between the both of us. And I feel like that's, it, it's been, a, uh, it was a really fun opportunity to to get to work with them here. Yeah, it sounds like it. We're talking today with Jake Frank, the uh, audio video wizard from Yellowstone National Park. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. RV Share provides not only an option for renters to enjoy the perks of RV travel without having to buy one, but an opportunity for owners to earn income by renting theirs out. You'll find everything from large and luxurious Class A RVs all the way to small and easy-to-tow pop-up campers. You can even use their filters to find an RV that is dog-friendly or one that will be delivered right to your campground. Visit RVShare.com to start your search for the perfect RV rental or to list your RV. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Okay, we're back with Jake Frank, the audio-video wizard from Yellowstone National Park. We've been talking about the uh, role he's providing the Park Service. Which do you prefer photographing? Landscapes, wildlife, people? I mean, you're, you're kind of uh, tasked with, with all those categories, aren't you? I, yeah, I take pictures of whatever's in front of me. I would say, I don't know that I have a favorite. I would say, I would say people are probably the, the thing. I, I don't want to use the word, I don't like it, but, or the phrase, I don't like it. But I would say, because that's the least experience that I have with that. Mm-hmm. But right now in Yellowstone, because I'm in a, in a capacity where I can actually shoot and, and that like my job is to 
develop content for various campaigns that we're working on. And there, there really is a need for, for good, high quality, you know, people doing work in uniform and showing that like the, the, the various faces of the national park service. And so we've, this summer we have like a concerted effort to try to document as much as we can. So that's been kind of a fun project is that I don't see it as like, I don't shy away from it. I see it as like, this is what I'm not very good at. And I, so let's shoot a bunch and get a lot more practice and figure out what works and what doesn't work. And so it's um, this, uh, this year we started a campaign a few weeks ago called what we do, uh, what we do Wednesdays where we just highlight a different task. Cause I, I, I think when people think of rangers in national parks, they think of people at entrance stations and people at visitor centers and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the, the, the cop who, or the law enforcement officer who, if they, uh, if you're doing something wrong they come over and write you a ticket, mm-hmm. but in Yellowstone and in most national parks, there's an entire city of people, you know, that have, I, I it would take me forever to list all the positions, but it's like, you have you have architects and road designers and people who are doing the road and maintenance people who keep all of the buildings up and running. You have somebody who's pumping out all of the toilets uh, that are you know put out throughout the entire park. Uh, you have backcountry rangers who are clearing trails so that people can go hike. You have all these things. I mean, like I said, I can go on and on and on. And what we're trying to do is is raise the profile of all those jobs. One, just so that people have a better understanding of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. But also, I just think that everyone, you know, if you knew that there's a job that you're doing in the private sector that also exists in a national park, but you didn't know that there was like a water quality specialist, you're like, if you're working in a city now, you know, if you could choose between living in a big city that you're not really a fan of, or you could live in Yellowstone National Park and, and do the same job, you know, I would say there's probably a handful of people that would be interested in in uh, being able to do that. So. It's uh, just kind of a fun project. And for me, because there's so many people, there's so many jobs, I don't really necessarily know all the work that we do. I don't know all the people. Hmm. So it's been really fun to just tag along, get to see what people do, you know, try to document it, and then also try to figure out how to share it with the public kind of in a fun way. And then also we have internal kind of newsletters and things that we put out. So it's really fun to be able to highlight a different job, like some of those jobs that really go unsung and they, they're, you know, not very high profile, but they're super important that if somebody stopped doing their job, everyone would notice, but no one notices that you're doing it. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Is there also a, a news component? I mean, uh, I know on the, the park website, the Flickr page, um, there is a, a media album of photos, but um, obviously there, there, there's a lot of news going on in Yellowstone throughout the year. Yeah, that's uh, funny that you noticed there. It seems like everything in Yellowstone uh, makes the front news. Like there's the volcano's going to explode, which it's not. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's all we're in the headlines all the time. Um, But yes, um, so I work in a division that is the only one of its kind, I think, in the National Park Service called Strategic Communications. Right. Um, And it's a hybrid of traditional news media and um, more kind of that digital content, social media, online presence. And um, I try to basically work with our public affairs officer, public affairs specialist, Morgan Morthen. And when she reaches out or when she gets requests for different stories or whatever it may be, um, if we're talking about a particular topic, you know, if you're going to put out a story on social media, you can put it out with text or you can put it out with like a captivating, interesting photo. And if you have good content, 
you know, content is king. It's going to go much further. It's going to grab people's attention. So when we're trying to get the stories out and we're trying to get a campaign and we're trying to raise awareness about a, a particular topic, that is a big portion of my job is to try to get out and develop the content for us. But then also there may be times when the news media reaches out to us and wants to get into some place that there's not necessarily that we can't give them access for safety reasons, or there might be a, a variety of things. And that's when they'll look to me to go out and to establish like, you know, pool photos or, or public domain uh, video so that I can go out and then be able to provide that for everyone. So, so yeah, it's a little bit of, it's a little bit of that. It's a little bit of, you know, just, social media content, our own kind of campaigns and, and stories that we're trying to tell and developing the content for that. But every once in a while, I get the opportunity, you know, when I'm, when I need to take a picture of say, I'm going to go over to the East entrance and document what it's like to work, you know, at the entrance station over there, I have to drive through the park and inevitably there's going to be something awesome that happens as I'm driving there. And so I'll just pull over, take some pictures, you know, document, and and then continue on my way mm -hmm. but it's it's very rare that i'm you know my my job is definitely not hey jake go out and be on vacation and take pictures of whatever <laughs> you want type of a thing so it's it's i have specific things and that i'm trying to get and then it's if you come across something cool you know take advantage be opportunistic you know document everything that you see but it's but rarely is my is my goal for the day to go out and to you know try to find wolves or something like that now, through the years, um, you, you've been in quite a few national parks. Um, any particularly dicey situations that come to mind, whether you were um, confronted by wildlife in some fashion or, or found yourself perched on the, the lip of a, a cliff? <laughs> no, actually, I've, I'm a big fan and I subscribe to the, you know, like plan ahead and prepare. And, and there are times just that things can go bad. But, you know, knock on wood, I've been lucky enough that... I haven't ever been in a situation that I felt like thing that I, that I needed to call for help. And I think a little bit of that has to do with, um, you know, I would, I feel that if you talk to any park ranger that they'd probably tell you that it'd be super embarrassing just for your coworkers, if they called on the radio for a search and rescue for an employee, you know, it's kind of that you, you don't want to have your, when you get back and everyone is like, you know, ribbing you like, Oh, Hey, we heard you, heard you got in over your head type of a thing. So I've just always tried to, you know, learn as much as I can about where I'm going and be prepared for whatever, you know, the, the thing that's out there. And, and a lot of times if we're going for work, we end up carrying more things than we need in case we come across somebody who's injured or, or is out of their element. So that way we can actually help them. Mm -hmm. But I, I think the only time I've really, you know, I've, I've definitely hiked in the wrong direction type of a thing. Um, when I, when I first started working in the park service, it was the it was October of 2010. I just finished my season in Glacier National Park, and one of my coworkers and I were just going to go on a little road trip. I was going to drop her back off in California, so we just started hitting all the national parks and trying to stay ahead of the snow as it started making its way south. And nice, we were in Natural Bridges, and if you've never been there before, there's three bridges. There's this big loop hike. It's 10 miles, and we were like, oh, 10 miles. That's no big deal. We could knock that out in a couple hours, and and then we'll continue on our way. So we're hiking, we get, you know, we get to the first bridge, we get to the second bridge, we stop, we have lunch, try to continue on. We can't really figure out where the trail goes. And we're like, well, 
uh, I don't know, maybe it goes this way. And then we kind of it, like it pinched out and we're like, well, that can't be it. And then we see some footprints and we're like, okay, let's go that way. So we start following these footprints and, and, um, we're following them. We're just chit-chatting. It's a beautiful day out. And, and, you know, we're like not paying attention to the time. And pretty soon I'm like, don't you think we should have been to the third bridge by now? And, <laughs> and she's like, oh yeah, that's right. And so I was like, well, you know, it's got to just be around the corner. So we just keep hiking. <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't have a map with us or anything. Like the people at the visitor center are like, oh yeah, it's pretty straightforward. You won't need a map. Hmm. So eventually we hear some people talking. And so we're like, all right, well, let's find these people and we'll see. They must be coming from the other direction. And we look up and we see that they're camping and we're like, well, that's not good because there's no backcountry camping in this park. Huh. So fast forward a little bit, we talked to them, they had a map, we'd hike seven miles in the wrong direction. So our 10 mile hike turned into like a 24 mile hike that day. Wow. And so we were hiking back in the dark. We had my headlamp, the battery had died, but my friend had one and it was like pouring rain on us. And then if we got back to our campsite and it was just like all muddy and our tent was filling with water. Yeah. And that was, that was not a very good night, but I think afterwards, once we were, you know, it was still somewhat warm, so we weren't in any danger, but it was just like a not fun sleeping night. Yeah. So when we woke up in the morning and finally had coffee and breakfast, we were able to laugh about it. But yeah, that, I think that's the closest I've ever been where I'm just like wanting to get out of it. It's like, this was not fun anymore. We just wanted to be out of the situation and back home. Yeah. Hey, before we let you go, can you you offer a handful of tips to park visitors that will help improve their images? Yeah. So typically what I tell people um, when you're driving in a park that there's wildlife is always have your wildlife lens on um, and your settings ready to go because I would say 50% of the cool wildlife photos that I've had have been, if you didn't have your camera ready in that five seconds or 10 seconds, you, the, the opportunity's gone. Mm-hmm. And I would say 90% of the cool photos that I have that are wildlife have been from the road or from a vehicle or like in a pullout, um, hmm. you know, because when you're hiking around animals, recog- they see people on two legs and they want to run away more. Hmm. And, and if they're bears, that's a great thing. You're trying to call out and make noise like you want wildlife to run away. But when animals see in a vehicle, especially birds, they for some reason they don't they they don't notice that it's a person in the car so if you stay in the vehicle you can and you can photograph a lot better so if there's a pull off and you can get off the road and allow people to go by but always have your camera ready with the wildlife lens on because there's never going to be like a sunset that you're you know fumbling trying to get your lens on it's it, it takes a little while mm-hmm. so that's kind of a big thing for a park like Yellowstone but other tips, like right now, it's a beautiful time of year out in Lamar Valley and with all the bison newborns. So you got bison calves right now, and we just saw our first elk calf this week. And um, so, you know, it's just a, a really fun time of year to see kind of the green grass and the flowers and everything starting to come up. But that's also, you want to keep your head on the swivel because you never know you're going to walk around a corner and there can be, you know, an elk literally right outside the door or, you know, Moms can bed their calves underneath your car, hmm. so you, you don't want to, you know, get in a bad situation. So I've just been kind of encouraging people, you know, to keep the safe distances, use your uh, use your wildlife lens, the zoom lens. And one of the big things that we have is we've been pushing this campaign called the Yellowstone Pledge, mm-hmm. and we're trying. We get questions all the time, you know, about social media and what that's doing to parks, and so. The social media, this campaign that we started is an effort to kind of use the tools that we have, social media, 
to be able to promote how to be a responsible photographer and a, uh, and a responsible visitor in general. And there's kind of like, there's a big list in there, top 10 ways on how to put the pledge into action. And a lot of it's just, you know, if you've been to national parks before, it's probably common sense, but for people who are just getting into visiting national parks and wanting to, you know, learn more, it's a really it's kind of a fun way to, you know, encourage your friends and family and other people on how to, you know, protect these places that we really care about. We're saying, take care of the places that take your breath away. And uh, Yellowstone is definitely a place that does that. Yes, it is. It's a beautiful park, my favorite one, whenever people ask me. Well, Jake, I appreciate your time today. We've been talking with Jake Frank. He's the uh, audio video wizard up at Yellowstone National Park. Uh, Some insights into his wonderful job. And uh, I really appreciate the time you've made for us today, Jake. All right. Thanks, Kurt. Yeah, I appreciate the time. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at www.gtnpf.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. They had me surrounded at the border, the border of Wind Cave National Park and Custer State Park in South Dakota, that is. And they were a dusty herd of bison, moving from one lush meadow of grass to another, with their skittish young red dogs in tow. That Geyser Rich National Park in northwestern Wyoming might be known as the bison capital of the national park system, but here in southwestern South Dakota, the bison at Wind Cave were out in full force and milling all about. Some paused briefly to consider whether I was a threatening predator of some sort or simply a mere curiosity. It had taken me nine hours to drive from my Utah home to Wind Cave, and smarter folks likely would opt to fly into Rapid City. However you get to South Dakota, there are some very good reasons to drive through this particular section of flyover country. Rent a rig when you get off the plane in Rapid City. You'll soon find yourself in wayward parts of the national park system, replete with bison, caves, and badlands that you will remember forever, particularly if you're from some wet and lush landscape. Jewel Cave National Monument, Badlands National Park, Wind Cave National Park, and Mount Rushmore National Memorial all are within an hour's drive of Rapid City. 
They alone will easily justify your spending a week's vacation exploring these parks. Toss in the Crazy Horse Memorial and Custer State Park, and 10 days or more wouldn't be too much for an exploration of this landscape, both above and below ground. Where do you begin? Head southeast from the airport, 61 miles to Badlands National Park. Covering nearly a quarter million acres, this park started out as a national monument back in 1929. It is hauntingly beautiful in its seeming austerity, evidence of the harsh environment and the poor soils found here. Badlands embraces a colorful landscape that began to take form 69 million years ago, back when water covered this part of the country. Once the inland sea drained away, the ebb and flow of rivers and floods added more sediment, and over the eons, the rippled and eroded landscape was revealed as you see it today with its stripes of mineral coloration. Here and there in Badlands, there are bits and pieces of ancient life. Back in 2010, a seven-year-old visitor to the park spied a partially exposed fossil that turned out to be the skull of a 32-million-year-old saber-toothed cat. You can start your exploration on the main park road that follows the northeastern boundary of the park's north unit. Stop at one of the overlooks and you'll gaze out over a panorama of prairie and colorful Badlands. Careful where you step, though, as this is rattlesnake country. Here in the north unit, you'll find the park's only lodging, Cedar Pass Lodge. Another resting place lies just outside the north unit, near Wall Drug. Frontier Cabins Motel offers well-kept cabins and even teepees for those seeking more western flavor. For more of an adventure, head to the park's stronghold unit, which is part of the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, and set out on foot to explore this rugged landscape. Just be sure to carry enough water, as what you'll find there more than likely will not be fit to drink. From Badlands, head southwest to Hot Springs, South Dakota, the gateway to Wind Cave National Park. It's approximately 60 miles of back roads, so check with the locals about road conditions before setting out on this route. If you're not that adventurous, a 92-mile route that takes you through the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation might be a safer choice. Wind Cave is one of the oldest units in the national park system, designated back in 1903 when it became the country's eighth national park. It was named for a small crevice in a hillside through which winds have been clocked at more than 70 miles per hour. Above ground, the rolling pine-studded surface of the Black Hills is beautiful, with several hundred bison, countless pronghorn antelope, and roving bands of elk. Wind Cave's bison herd started in 1913 when 14 of the animals, seven bulls and seven cows, were shipped west from the Bronx Zoo in New York City via rail to the park to kickstart a bison conservation effort that is responsible for an astonishing number of today's herds. Sign up for one of the park's underground tours where you'll see rare and fragile boxwork cave formations. Above ground, there are some nice hiking trails at Wind Cave, or you can drive around the entire 35,000-acre park via US 385, South Dakota 87, and Park Route 5 in about an hour. Take longer if you dally to stretch your legs in the beautiful rolling Black Hill setting. There is no lodging in Wind Cave National Park, but the Elk Mountain Campground is one of my favorites in the entire national park system. Now, just about 45 minutes west of Wind Cave, tucked away in the Black Hills National Forest, is Jewel Cave National Monument. This overlooked park system unit was established in 1908 as a monument overseen by the U.S. Forest Service. In 1933, the Forest Service handed it off to the Park Service. While Wind Cave might have the world's greatest collection of boxwork formations, 
Jewel Cave counters with the world's greatest collection of dazzling white calcite spar formations. It also happens to be the third longest cave system in the world, with some 200 miles of mapped passageways and more exploration pushing the length longer. When the Park Service decided to expand the cave tours at Jewel Cave, it had the help of cave explorers to choose where they should put the cave entrance. While the natural entrance is reached via a short hike and is used these days for lantern tours, the main visitor center sits more than 200 feet above the so-called target room that Herb and Jan Cohn discovered in the early 1960s. Midway through the 60s, after some meticulous above-ground mathematical calculations determined the exact spot above the target room, an elevator shaft was sunk down to this chamber. Today, you get a quick 27-second ride down to the target room to begin the popular scenic tour. Don't neglect the monument's above-ground trails. Unless you're waiting in line to buy your cave tour ticket when the visitor center opens at 8 a.m., you might have to wait an hour or more for your trip. Spend it taking a hike down the canyons trail on the landscape above Jewel Cave. From this national monument, head east on US-16 to the town of Custer, South Dakota, and just beyond it, Custer State Park. Sharing a common border with Wind Cave, this state park boasts about 1,300 bison in its herd, roughly four times as many as the national park next door. You could spend a week at Custer, fishing, hiking, paddling a canoe, and watching wildlife. After your stay at Custer State Park is over, follow US 16A to Mount Rushmore National Memorial to see the iconic stone presidents, Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and Roosevelt, that were carved into the Black Hills during a 14-year period from 1927 to 1941. From there, it's only about 24 miles back to Rapid City and your flight home. This collection of national and state parks in western South Dakota is well worth the time and effort to explore. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. The Yosemite Conservancy inspires people to support projects and programs that preserve Yosemite National Park and enrich the visitor experience. The Conservancy funds transformative work throughout the park. The grant's donors support help protect diverse wildlife and plant species and restore the precious habitats they depend on. Grants also support improvements to miles of trails to ensure visitors can safely access Yosemite's wonders. Visit yosemiteconservancy.org to find more inspiration. Upcoming from Mountaineer's Books in June is Hike the Parks, Best Day Hikes, Walks, and Sites in Redwood National and State Parks. Now, Redwood National and State Parks is not your typical national park. That's quite evident from its name. But when you look at a map of the park, located in Northern California, it becomes clearer. This is a narrow park that roams and meanders along the Pacific coast, interspersing national and state parklands. And you need to know that if you're planning to do some hiking there. 
That's why you'll find the full-page map in John Soray's upcoming book on hiking this park so helpful. Orienting yourself to this national park is key, as you can enter it at any number of towns. And that's why I like the placement of the map before you dive into any of the hikes Soray's describes. Turn the page and you'll find, broken down in segments that you can match up to the map, the author's Hikes at a Glance. It's a logical layout to help you quickly see both how you might want to enter the park and what hikes of interest can be found near that entry point. Soray's then provides the perfunctory details. What don't you want to miss on your visit? Some human history of the area. How the state got equal billing in this national park. Flora and fauna. And how to plan your trip, with itineraries for one to three days in both the southern and northern regions of the park. He points out the possible campgrounds you can stay in, fees you might be asked to pay, and safety issues pertaining to swimming in the Pacific Ocean and walking along the steep cliffs. From there, Soares lays out his hikes, 38 in all. Each entry includes the ubiquitous details to get to the trailhead, what maps or GPS coordinates you can use, whether the hike is easy, moderate, or strenuous, and the author's overall impressions that explain why he wanted to include the hike in this book. The guidebook, due out June 1st, is 4 inches by 7 inches in size. It's a nice size for stashing in your hip pocket once you head down the trail. It is tightly focused on hiking in Redwood National State Parks. If you're looking for a book that provides a more in-depth treatment of the park, with more insights into its natural, cultural, and historic resources, this isn't that book. But if you're looking for a guidebook that provides an overview of the hiking opportunities and details on 38 of the hikes that you could build a long weekend around, this is a good option. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park Audio Series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.